There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. When we can't dream any longer, we die. That's a quote from writer and political activist Emma Goldman. I started this journey through the outer limits on a mission of respect and discovery. But it didn't take long for me to realize that the show was surpassing my expectations and resonating with me on a level I hadn't anticipated. It became apparent early on that the format of the podcast changed from episode recap to episode-induced introspection and recap. I jokingly told my wife that this podcast is basically me working out my issues by way of classic television. Whether it was accepting my past's effect on my own present and the man who was never born, reflecting on my relationship with my older brother and he crawled out of the woodwork, realizing the gravity of Alan finding out he's about to become a father in architects, and even now, watching a father wanting to bring his son home hit me especially hard since in the time since our last episode, my father passed away. All this speaks to the talent of Stefano and the Daystar team. You want art in any medium to move you and inspire thought, and they've consistently delivered on that front. In The Outer Limits Companion, David J. Scow says the architects of fear ushered in the golden age of the series, and that certainly seems to be the case. David J. Scow goes on to say that the completion of The Invisibles marked the end of an era for the show. By November 1963, the show's shooting schedules for each episode were shortened by an entire day. On top of that, the show's budget had been cut down to $120,000 per episode. That's quite the free fall from the pilot episode's $213,000 budget. Another blow would come with assistant directors Lee Katzen and John Nicholas departing the series, both having worked on a number of classic episodes. But a major blow came from the departure of Conrad Hall. The show had established its distinct look under the eye of Conrad Hall. But with him no longer involved, Kenneth Peach was tapped by Leslie Stevens to take over cinematography duties for the series. So with all this having taken place, I venture forth into new territory. Will the remaining episodes still resonate as much as the previous ones? Will the new look of the show take away from the overall experience? I guess we'll see. I have faith in the show to deliver. Even the two or three episodes I've seen from season two were enjoyable. Though admittedly the differences came as quite a shock at first. But once the dust settled, the magic was still there for me. Now I will be spoiling tonight's episode. So if you haven't seen it, you can find it on Blu-ray from the good folks at Kino World. And now you can also find it on the Roku channel by searching The Outer Limits. Big thanks to the Outer Limits Facebook group for sharing that information. Now let's sit quietly while Vic Perrin's control voice sets the stage for tonight's episode, The Children of Spider County. In the light of today's growing anxieties, it has become more absolute 
that the wealth of the nation consists in the number of superior men that it harbors. It is therefore a matter of deep concern and deeper consequence when four of the most magnificent and promising young minds in the country suddenly disappear off the face of the earth. Written by Anthony Lawrence, directed by Leonard Horn, with assistance from Wilson Shire, director of photography, Kenneth Peach. This episode aired for the first time on Monday, the 17th of February, 1964. I like the opening narration because it reminds us, even all these years later, how delicate the balance of peace and power was at the time. The control voice makes mention of the growing anxieties of the day, which can only be a reference to the ever-present threat of nuclear annihilation at that time. It's easy to forget, or for some not even consider, the national psyche of the time this episode aired. The sense of impending doom could easily be triggered by the slightest change or even perceived change in leverage. Behind the nuclear arms race of the Cold War were a great number of brilliant minds on each side. So if suddenly a number of those brilliant minds were to disappear, then that would definitely change the leverage and have serious and potentially catastrophic consequences. So with the stakes established, we open in the dark room of the United States Space Security Bureau. A meeting is taking place, and a man is showing slides and giving information of four men. All four men vanished without a trace on the same day. There's a cool little Easter egg there where one of the men is said to have worked for the Hale Neokinetics Institute, an institute which also employed one Dr. Thomas Kellender, the dedicated scientist in search of a suitable candidate for an inhabitant exchange between Earth and the planet Chromo in the episode The Mice. I love little bits of interconnectivity like that. Upon investigation into these disappearances, a pattern was discovered in the background of the four men, despite the fact all men were separated by hundreds of miles. All four of these men, considered intellectually and physically superior, in aptitude, performance, and delivery, were born at the same place. The same state? In the same county, Spider County. And in the same year and within the same month, their birth records are there and indicate a curious phenomenon. Each child, was born at least two months prematurely. Immediately after birth, their fathers disappeared and were never heard from again. And each child, although unrelated, at least on the maternal side, had been given the same middle name, Eros. A Greek word for love. And it is also the name of an obscure planet in the galaxy Krell. The gentleman conducting the meeting is Agent John Bartlett. He is played by actor John Milford, a veteran TV actor who spent the 50s and early 60s appearing in television westerns, such as Mackenzie's Raiders, Buckskin, The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, Have Gun World Travel, and Stony Brook. We learned that because of all the attention they were receiving, the families of these gifted children eventually left the community. Each child would go on to achieve prominence in different fields. Agent Bartlett then reveals that a fifth man by the name of Ethan Wexler has just been discovered. He did not leave Spider County like the others, and unlike the others, he did not disappear. Turns out, he's being held on a murder charge. So Agent Bartlett is to head to Spider County to question him, if it isn't too late, of course. 
There's an interesting bit at the end of that meeting scene where the camera pans to Wexler's photograph and just stays there for like two beats. And there isn't any sound or music, just the natural silence of the scene. On my first viewing, it was a little awkward, but the more I rewatched it, the more I appreciated it. It actually sets up the next scene pretty nicely. We're sitting in silence, then we cut to a dark, smoky room. Ethan Wexler is shouting for help in the dark. Then we get our creature reveal. Now, I'd always seen the image of this one, that insectoid face with a humanoid body and a suit. In terms of creature design, it isn't the most elaborate, but that was due in large part to the production resources being siphoned over to the unknown, which was being filmed at the same time. That being said, I still like the design. Sure, it's not as terrifying as the Thetan creature from Architects, but there's still something especially unsettling about a humanoid form in a black suit with alien features. It called to mind the silence from Doctor Who and the gentleman from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, both of which would come later on down the line. Another thing I want to mention is this scene is very similar to the one inside the box in Don't Open Till Doomsday. It was fun comparing the way both production teams handled a similar setting. Ethan runs through the smoke and the creature lifts its head into frame. It turns and reaches for Ethan, who starts to scream. And suddenly, he's awoken from his sleep, and he awakens in a jail cell. Wake up, boy! Come on, let's answer some more of those questions. You can sleep all you want to later on. You've been at him over and over, Sheriff, most of the night. Care for something to eat, Ethan? You've got a reputation for eating like a whole truckload of farmhands, the way I hear it. I have many reputations. No, thank you. I will not eat in this place. This starts the third day of his night eating in this place, Sheriff. I suppose you and I and I... Half a dozen deputies can take Mr. him across. Mr. Greenbane, I appreciate your consideration for your client. But if he'll confess now and tell us what he did with Jonathan's body... I did not kill Jonathan Stimson. You were found sleeping in Jonathan's barn. Jonathan's wife saw him go into that barn, and he never came out again. And you hated him and... I didn't hate him! I only wanted him to apologize for the indecent remarks he made at the harvest dance in front of the girl, Anna Bishop. I work on her father's farm. No one who was present at that dance heard those remarks. But Jonathan did admit that he fought them. Fought them! Are you implying that Ethan can read people's minds as well as make their corpses disappear into thin air? Ethan has been performing all sorts of witch boy tricks ever since he was a child. He and the rest of those fatherless geniuses. If Spider County is foolish enough to bring Ethan to trial, it'll be for the suspected murder of a missing corpse. I could not commit any murder. And no one in Spider County really believes I did. I am going to be tried for reading minds and for walking on moonlit meadows and for being a thing that goes bump in the night. So we discover that Ethan has the ability to read minds and apparently make corpses disappear. Now what I really loved about that last scene is you never see the faces of the officers yelling at Ethan. Instead, we get an overhead view of the cell and one really cool shot of Wexler the shadows of both officers on the wall behind him shouting. Ethan Wexler is portrayed by actor Lee Kinsolving, who is making his only appearance in The Outer Limits. Fans of The Twilight Zone may recognize him from the fifth season episode, Black Leather Jackets, where he played Scott, one of the three motorcycle riding men who entered town. Here he appears to have traded his leather jacket for a denim one, which was fun to see. Sadly, after his appearance here, he would only have two more television appearances. One in an episode of Route 66, 
and another in an episode of Gunsmoke. In 1964, Ken Solving developed a respiratory illness that caused him to collapse and pass away at the age of 36. I like him in this role. He conveys a vulnerability that's a nice contrast to the stern, matter-of-fact demeanor of the other two principal characters. Ethan is being escorted out of the station to a patrol car when we see a suited man watching from across the street. A young woman runs and gives Wexler a hug just before the police shove him into the back seat. We'll see her again soon. The car drives off as the mysterious suited man looks on. This is our introduction to Abel, who was played by actor Kent Smith, who we last saw as Dr. Blotch in A Crawled Out of the Woodwork. I was so glad to see him back. I really liked him in Woodwork, and I knew his gravitas would add so much to this episode. We see Ethan cuffed to an officer as they drive along the county road. Suddenly, we see a figure walking through the shrubs. It looks human, but his hands and feet are definitely not. The creature steps into the road and extends its arms, causing the patrol car to careen off the road and flip onto its side. One of the officer's stands comes face to face with the creature. Its large eyes light up and the officer is disintegrated. The creature stares into the car as Wexler starts to come to. He opens his eyes and sees the man who was watching him leave the station. Are you alright? The man asks as he helps Ethan escape the wreck. Come with me, he adds, as the two run into the woods. A car pulls up to the police station, and Agent Bartlett runs to the door. Are you looking for Ethan? Yes, is he still here? Are you the man who phoned up about him last night? No. Oh. Man phoned up. He wanted to know where they had Ethan. He said he was his father. Are you certain the man said he was Ethan's father? That's what he said. Though she popped up for a second earlier, here we are better introduced to Anna Bishop, who was played by actress Benny Geddes. Geddes was a prolific actress from 1956 to 1963 appearing in episodes of the United States Steel Hour, Studio One in Hollywood, Gunsmoke, and Stony Burt, just to name a few. After her appearance here, she landed an alternating role in Days of Our Lives. After that, her credits start to get more spaced apart, ending with her appearance in Beretta in 1977. In 1980, she switched gears and pursued a career in real estate. We see Ethan and Abel running through the woods, I like the energy of this shot a lot. It only lasts a few seconds, but the frenetic energy definitely came across. Ethan washes his face in the creek, but when he looks up for a brief moment, he has a flashback of the creature from his nightmare. Abel insists they leave, and he knows that Ethan is innocent. Ethan tells Abel he doesn't know him, but he feels like he does. Is that not a warm feeling, to meet a stranger and feel as if you knew him? Shall we go? Where? Where superstition and fear can never reach you again. There is no such place on Earth. Please, we must get away from here. They'll track you down with dogs and desperation. They'll destroy you. Won't you let me save you? I appreciate your help, and I want to thank you. But I don't want to incriminate you any more than you've already incriminated yourself. 
Where are you going? Far away from Spider County. Suddenly, we hear sirens approaching. Abel grabs Ethan, and they hide inside the bushes as the patrol car passes. Now Kent Smith and Lee Kinsolving are really great in this next scene. It exemplifies my statement earlier about the juxtaposition of the two performances. Kent Smith is bringing the thunder with his performance. I mean, the man can deliver lines like nobody else. And while this is happening, we can see a roller coaster of emotions all in Lee Kinsolving's face. The hesitation, uncertainty, and finally, realization. We see it all in the man's face. I honestly think he was perfect with this role. Wherever you go, however fast you run, every turn may be the wrong one, the last one, and you'll be caught. You cannot escape dogs and desperation. Except with me, won't you come with me? What holds you here? What in this hating, barking world could hold you? Nothing. I wanted to be held here. I even fooled myself into thinking that someone could hold me here no matter what. But I guess I always knew I'd have to go someday and go alone. But I can't go without saying goodbye. Wexler throws the handcuffs onto the ground and runs back towards the town. We're now at the Bishop family farm, where Mr. Bishop stands guard, holding his loaded rifle. As he walks along the perimeter, we see Anna walk out of a barn carrying a basket. Ethan calls to Anna from the bushes. They meet in Ethan's room, where she tells him that everyone is looking for him, and even her father has joined the hunt. She asks why he ran, that running makes him look guilty. Wexler says that he already looks guilty to everyone, except her. Anna insists that there are people out there who believe in innocence. She mentions her encounter with Agent Bartlett, but Ethan says he too met a man, a man who knew he wasn't guilty, and urged him to leave with him. Just then, the door swings open, and Abel stands in the doorway. He insists they leave in a hurry, but Anna begs Ethan to stop running. Abel says he will explain in time, when there is time. But the two must leave at once. Ethan, take me with you. No, he cannot, even if he wanted to. The choice is not yours or mine. Destiny gives choice to no one, my son. And your destiny was shaped before the seed of your life took root. What did you say? I'll explain another time. You said my son. I'm your father. My father? I came a long way to reclaim you. I came from very far. My father's dead. No one can come that far. Come, my son. The others are waiting for us. We are all going home together. No, Ethan! Don't go with him! Anna, I don't know why. But I know I must go with him. I know he is my father then I'll go with you. I don't care where, I just want to go with you. I need to be with you. No, Ethan. Then we'll go our own way. Abel tries to reason with Ethan, but Ethan's not budging. He asks if his father would want him to break Hannah's heart as well as his own. 
Abel lowers his eyes for a moment, then looks at Ethan and says, All right. Suddenly, Mr. Bishop appears behind them, rifle in hand. Hold it. Right there. Run across to the house, Anna. Call the sheriff. You stay here, boy. And whoever you are, you'll stay too. I cannot. Neither can my son. Your son? I figured a no-good dreamer like Ethan didn't have a father he could call his own. Go on, both of you. I'll join you in a moment. Go! One step more and I fire at him. You may wound him. He has to go on a long, long journey. Journey much too special to be marred by bloodshed and pain. So before you fire at him, you fire at me. You say that like you think I won't. Won't? No, you can't. You can't fire. Camera zooms in on the rifle barrel, and after a slight fading effect, we see a creature's hand grab the barrel. Suddenly, we're back at the overturned police car. Agent Bartlett is examining the scene, while the lone surviving officer is attempting to explain the cause of the accident. Agent Bartlett looks at the ground nearby and sees a large footprint with three toes. While the police continue their conversation, Agent Bartlett follows the footprints into the woods. We then see Abel, Ethan, and Anna running through the woods. Ethan drops his bag and goes to retrieve but Abel grabs his arm and they keep running. There just isn't enough time. We then hear the sound of search dogs barking as they too make their way through the woods with officers in tow. There's a shot where the dogs run through a creek. I don't know if it's due to the time of day the scene was filmed, but I really like how the sun's reflection on the water makes everything seem that much darker. Agent Bartlett continues his search through the woods when he finds the bag that Ethan had dropped. He takes it back to his car when he sees a man walking in his direction. It's Mr. Bishop. His pace is slow, and he appears to be staring off while clenching his rifle. You saw him, didn't you? Yes. He wasn't alone. No. No, there was a man. Just said he was Ethan's father. Where are they going? Did he say? Journey. Long, special journey. Did you see him? Oh, no. No, uh, just a few traces. We'll trace him down. Now, Sheriff Stakefield sent you home to put that gun away. Still think that's a good idea. But they took my daughter. A man's got cause to go gunning when his daughter's taken. Mr. Bishop seemed to snap out of his haze once he mentioned the long, special journey. He storms off with his rifle pointed outward. Agent Bartlett watches him leave. Then suddenly, we hear a high-pitched noise. Agent Bartlett looks up, and we see a floating light in the sky. Anna is picking fruit from a tree when she too sees a light in the sky. Abel observes the light from the doorway of a barn before heading back inside. Ethan says he and his mother were going to leave town when he was nine but she passed away before they could. He was taken in by Anna's father to help on the farm. Not so much to help Ethan, but more to help the bishop farm, since they didn't have any sons to help tend the farm. When he grew older, 
he fell in love with Anna. She was the sole reason he stayed in Spider County. Abel tells Ethan that he is in fact his father, and that the others who left town had fathers too, that their mothers were chosen for their strength and gentleness, and when they had grown enough to survive the trip, they would be brought to their true home. So this part made me think, if Ethan and the others are the future of their new home world, in time would that entire population appear human with psychic abilities? Or at a certain age, will their appearance change into the humanoid insect form we see Abel take? While Abel and Ethan have their conversation, we see Agent Bartlett sneaking up to the barn. He makes his way to the roof when he sees Mr. Bishop heading towards the barn with his rifle. Mr. Bishop approaches the barn door when suddenly Abel walks out and confronts him. This next scene is my favorite of the episode, and it's just Ken Smith doing his thing. Just a close-up of his face, and he speaks to Mr. Bishop. But you can see generations of pain in his eyes, and hear the sorrow of a slowly dying species in his voice. As the scene goes on, that sorrowful tone soon turns to anger for the man standing between him, his son, and their homeworld of Eris. You are foolish, and you are evil. You called my special and gifted son a no-good dreamer. In our world, on the planet Eris, it was the absence and abhorrence of dreaming that made men no good. They worked like insect slaves. They fought evil wars. They gathered lush riches and splendid pains, but they took no time out for dreams. And dreaming became a lost art. Abel grabs a rifle from Mr. Bishop, who was standing in a trance. He leans the rifle against the barn and continues. And as always happens, they began to die off. For all their riches, they began to die. No male child had been born in many years. The seed that spawns the male had retreated in sorrow, faded out of this dreamless race. The wise ones thought it was the climate. So they sent five of us here to prove that in a more favorable climate, the males of Eris could again produce males. And perhaps they were right. Perhaps it was the climate that enabled us to produce sons. But I do not think so. I think it was because, while here, we once again caught the fashion of dreaming. You and the others will start a new race for Eris. A race of men who cannot help but dream, who have the dream machine in their human half and call it soul. Suddenly, Mr. Bishop snaps out of the trance and reaches for his rifle. Abel turns. He's in his alien form. His eyes glow and Mr. Bishop is disintegrated. He turns to Anna and Ethan in his human form, and they are staring in absolute shock. Ethan is shocked at how easily Abel could destroy Anna's father. He says Abel should have stayed on Earth, and that maybe he could have even developed a soul. Abel looks at Anna, who is weeping over her father's demise, and he looks at Abel and says, All right, my son, I have lost. I will go without you, if I must. And he walks into the barn. Ethan and Anna run into the woods, and we hear officers closing in with their dogs. They run through trees and shrubs as fast as they can, trying to avoid detection. They run down a hill and Anna trips and falls. Ethan helps her up and the two keep running. 
back at the barn where Agent Bartlett is still hiding on the roof. He sees Abel walk out of the barn in his alien form and slowly walk into the woods. He follows closely behind Abel, but we notice a haze slowly start to creep in. The distance between Agent Bartlett and Abel starts to grow. Agent Bartlett walks past a large tree. Then we see Abel appear from behind it. He's watching Agent Bartlett. We're back with Ethan and Anna, who have stopped to rest near a river. The sound of approaching sirens forces them to get up and continue to run. Ethan notices an unattended canoe on a nearby pier. He says, we can get across the river. He rips the lock off a storage bin and grabs a set of oars. The two jump in the canoe and begin to paddle across the river. But a police car slowly arrives and officers begin firing warning shots into the river. Ethan knows this is as far as he's going to get, so he slowly turns the canoe and paddles back to the pier where the police are waiting for him. Abel looks on disappointed as his son is taken into custody. We're at the jail once again, where Ethan is laying in his bunk. Agent Bartlett walks in with a chair and sits beside Ethan. Will you talk to me, Ethan? It took a lot of doing and a few big phone calls to get Sheriff Stakefield to let me come in here. Will you listen then if I talk to you? I saw your father in the barn in the orchard. I saw what he did to Mr. Bishop and what he became while he was doing it. Who are you? I'm with the Space Agency Investigation Division and I've been wanting to talk to you. You believed what you saw? Why not? Anna believed it. Well, I thought she just wanted to for my sake. Are you going to do anything? I mean, is it all right if I hope? I'm going to do as much as I can, whatever. Well, tell them. They'll believe you. I'm not so sure, Ethan. Not a thing as unbelievable as this is. If, if we want to convince anyone, we've got to produce your father. He's on his way back to Harris by now. He admitted he had lost. You know, Sheriff Stakefield's deputy can't imagine how he was able to find you at the riverbank. I can imagine, can't you? Your father wants you right in this cell, Ethan. He wants you back in the hand you have no faith in. You're sure you're going to be convicted and sentenced to die, aren't you? Yes, I'm sure. Maybe going to Eris, even with a father like that, will seem the best of two possible worlds to you after a while. I believe that's what he's counting on. You know, most living things will choose life under any circumstances over death. Your father will come to you. I'm certain of that. He's going to show you that choice. You choose Eris. You go with him. It's later, and we're in a fog-filled forest. The camera pans down, and we see a man laying on the ground. The camera then pans over, and we see two more men hiding in the trees. Abel appears behind a nearby tree and walks off. Back at the jail, Agent Bartlett is parked outside along with three other officers. He continues to watch in the dead of the night while the other officers have fallen asleep. In the cell, Ethan sits up and notices a figure appear at his window. Yes, 
Look at me. I appear when I appear too. See a monster. Yet you see a monster who could not kill you. These men, these fair-faced earth men, they will kill you. Is it possible you can choose to remain with them and let go the reins of eternal superiority? Come, my son. Come close. Take my hand and tell me to my eyes that you are human enough to make that self-destructive choice. I thought I heard a sound, and it made me sad. Father, if I say no this last time, you will kill me, won't you? Kill? We are not killers, Ethan. We do not have the power to kill only to destroy, suddenly and totally. Killers have the power to kill, slowly and partially. We do not kill even. We uncreate. I would have to do that to you. I cannot let plain Earthmen undo what I have done. Hurry. I love how Hippo says, we uncreate. It called to mind the alien being from Don't Open Till Doomsday and Harold G. Finley from The Man With The Power, both of whom decided to uncreate themselves. So that was a cool little piece of connective tissue to me. The sound that Abel heard was a tracking device in Agent Bartlett's car. He knows that Abel is there, and Abel knows that he's been detected. He just hasn't revealed how. Abel and Ethan run off, and Agent Barlett follows the tracking device with the officers. Abel and Ethan stop in the foggy forest. Abel walks to four different spots and awakens four other men. These are the missing men from Spider County, but Abel has words for Ethan. Just a little farther now. Only a million stars. And I am so sad. Sad? Why, Father? You have chosen the dogs and desperation to send betraying signals back to them, to keep them on our trail. I gave you the strength and genius of Eros, but your mother gave you the weak sense of birth. Our sense of hearing allows us to hear such sounds as these. We can hear the silent sigh of a star. I was commissioned to reclaim all of you, even. I cannot go back without my own son. You, above all, belong to my world. And to my mother's. There are dogs here, father, and desperate men, killers and hypocrites and bigots. Cruel, unthinking, senseless men. But here they have no special powers unless we give them to them. Here they are no stronger than good men, unless the good make themselves weak. But here there's a chance. The battle isn't lost before it's begun. But in your world, what chance would anyone have with a soul in your world? During that clip, Abel pulled out a tracking device from Ethan's pocket and crushed it with his hand. But while Ethan was standing up to his father, we noticed the other men start to snap out of their trances 
police car pulls up, and Agent Bartlett leads officers into the woods. Abel hears the man approaching, and returns to his alien form. He's about to confront the men when the four missing men surround Abel and tackle him to the floor. Abel pushes them off and freezes them into place. Just then, Bartlett and the other officers arrive. They rush in, but Abel raises his arms and freezes them in place. With every threat neutralized, Abel turns to his son, but Ethan has words for his father. I wanted to go home, but I didn't want to go with a murderer. I don't think home should be a world where you have to live with a murderer. This world isn't a whole lot better. But if Spider County murders me, at least they'll do it neat and legal. Abel's eyes glow to uncreate his son, but then they stop. Abel turns to Bartlett and the officers. I cannot destroy the better part of myself, the dream part. He is the better part of you, too. Can you destroy the better part of yourselves? Abel walks off and we see a spacecraft hidden behind the trees. Abel looks at his son one last time, then enters the spacecraft. Lights flash as the craft starts to ascend. We see everyone start to wake up from their paralysis. They look up as the spacecraft continues its ascent. Ethan looks at Agent Bartlett and smiles. The men all leave together as we get one final glimpse of Abel's spacecraft as it speeds through the stars. We then see Ethan and Anna laying on a riverbank, watching the sunrise. They stand and walk off into the distance as the control voice takes us out. The wealth of a nation, of a world, consists in the number of superior men that it harbors. And often it seems that these men are too different, too dreaming. And often because they are driven by powers and dreams strange to us, they are driven away by us. But are they really so different? Are they not, after all, held by the same things that hold us? By strong love? and soft hands. I will say that even though this episode wasn't given the full attention of the Daystar crew, it was still a solid episode. Most episodes have taken place in two or three locations anyway, so that didn't feel like a negative factor at all. One thing I realized afterwards, and David J. Scal points this out as well in The Outer Limits Companion, is the plot point of Jonathan Stimson's murder falls by the wayside and is never resolved. But hey, you've only got so much time to tell your story, so I can let that go. The creature effects were adequate for what the story required. Overall, I enjoyed this episode. It's not at the top of my list, but it's certainly not at the bottom either. In the end, it delivered what it was supposed to, so it'll go down as simply an adequate episode in my book. We now go to David J. Scow's The Outer Limits Companion to sharpen the image with some trivia. (laughs) 
Anthony Lawrence had the following to say about working out the story. Children was blocked out in a sitting with Joe Stefano and Lou Morheim. We had difficulty pinning it down. It was a difficult story, and I had trouble with it. The first version of this story had a different ending. In that ending, Abel simply wanders into the woods, and detectives chase after him. The forest Abel, Ethan, and Anna run through was the Tarzan Forest at MGM. After this episode, director Leonard Horn would be recruited by Irwin Allen to direct several segments of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And finally, to reduce costs, it was decided that all the show's interiors had to be filmed in one single day at Samuel Goldwyn Studios. When Leonard Horn restructured some scenes to be done outdoors, he got into trouble with Joe Stefano. So that's it for the children of Spider County. If you want to share your thoughts and memories of the show, you can send an audio clip to victor at theouterlimitspodcast.com. You can find the show on Twitter by searching at Outer Limits Pod. You can find the show on Instagram as well by searching the Outer Limits Podcast. Most episodes are available on most podcatcher apps, but the archive can be found over on the mothership that is the twilightzonepodcast.com. I want to say thank you for sticking with me. I know it's become a running gag at this point, but I will try to get the next one out without too long a delay. So that's it for me, folks. Join me next time when I cover episode 22 of season one, titled Specimen Unknown. Until that time, I am Victor Campoa, and I now return control to you.